I want to welcome uh, each of you uh, here and also those of you who are live streaming uh, to our chapel service for this week. Uh, I was just talking with our speaker for the morning who you will meet and quickly, uh, if you don't know him already, you'll feel like you know him and love him already. I'll introduce him in a moment. But we were talking and we're all normally sitting here thinking we're ready to sing. And uh, you're probably feeling like I'd be ready to sing too. So we're going to have to sing in making melody in our hearts, as the scripture says. Our praises still can go to God, even when our songs are silent. And uh, we're delighted that we can gather as a community in chapel and uh, launch the year. This is called Spiritual Life Week. For those of you who are newer to Heritage, you uh, this is maybe your first cycle through things. We often start the year with what we call Spiritual Life Week. And in a sense... Every year, every week should be spiritual life week, right? I mean, our lives should be lived as unto the Lord. So why do we have a spiritual life week at the start of the year? Here's a couple reasons. One, we believe that life is more than just physical. So we have a spiritual life week. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Is not life more than food? So he was implying there that life, real life, as God meant it, is more than just physical existence. Now, that's not to minimize the importance of physical life. Physical life is a gift from God, and that's why we're asking all of us who are part of this community to really make an effort to preserve physical life, our own and those that are our neighbors, those we love. That's why we're asking you, though it's not always easy, to stay real rigorous on the protocols related to COVID-19. So that means the masks, which we're happily wearing in class indoors, But it also means keeping physical distancing when you're outdoors. So we're still out, but he has us as part of that. So in honor of him and in love for one another, we do those things. But we do those things knowing that that is important, but there is a spiritual life that is part of the physical life that really makes life the abundant life. We believe not only is life more than spiritual, life at its root is spiritual. That God wants us to be spiritually alive. Now, in our culture, it's pretty safe to say you should be spiritual. Probably every if you walk down the street here and ask people, do you think you should be spiritual? Most people are going to go, yeah. And if you ask them, what does it mean to be spiritual? You would get all kinds of different answers, right? So when we say being spiritual, we mean being spiritual as defined by, described by, and taught by God's word. It's life in the spirit is taught by his word. So that's why we begin this year with saying, we want to focus in on that, and we want to have a special emphasis of saying, Lord, make this year a year of spiritual growth. And we bring in a a great speaker every year, and this year uh, we have one of our favorites. Uh, Dwayne Klein is the pastor of what used to be known as Houston Street Baptist, now is James North, I think he said, because their church has just opened in a new location. And, and Dwayne, I'm trusting you'll say a few words about that just to give us a picture of, of where you're coming from. Uh, Dwayne is a dear friend and is a, a, a man who loves to teach God's word to God's people and those who need to know God. Uh, he teaches uh, both at his church in Hamilton, but he also speaks at conferences and campuses across the land. And so we feel really privileged to have him here. He's gonna be with us here today and then this week, uh, we'll also be reconvening on Thursday, and Duane will be back. Today, he's got to scoot out of here kind of in a hurry because they're having a grand opening at his church. But Thursday, he's able to linger a little bit if some of you want to chat with him on the far side of his message. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to ask you to join me in giving a nice warm welcome to our brother, Duane Klein. So let's pray.
Father, I thank you that on this morning, we say thank you for the gift of physical life. This pandemic has made us aware that life is a gift in new ways that perhaps we took for granted. We just assumed that we'd wake up feeling healthy and go to bed feeling healthy and being healthy. But now we realize it's your goodness and your grace that preserves us. And so we thank you for the gift of physical life. But Lord, we're also here hungry for spiritual life. We want to know you. We want your Holy Spirit living inside of us, Christ in us through the Spirit, to give us that life that is fully alive, connected with you, connected with one another in Christ. I thank you for Dwayne who's coming. I ask that you would empower him by your Spirit. You give him freedom and liberty to speak to us. Give us openness and receptivity to hear from you. And we will thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me in welcoming our brother, Dwayne Klein. Dwayne. It is a true, wow, we'll let them work on that. My voice is loud. We'll let them, uh, it's a true joy to be here with you at Heritage College and Seminary. I love this school, uh, so appreciate it. And I so appreciate Rick Reed, Linda, and the faculty here and their investment in your lives. I love ministry. Uh, and I love learning about the Lord and about how to care for his people. I pastor a church in downtown Hamilton that was known until a couple of weeks ago as uh, Houston Street Baptist Church, where I have been for 26 years. And uh, this week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we have just opened a new facility. It's a $22 million facility in downtown Hamilton. It includes 45 apartments in the facility for the navigate worlds like that. What does that look like and be involved with them? I'm going to talk a bit more about that on Thursday um, and what that looks like and, and how we do some of our poverty stuff. But I really prayed about what to do today. What would be beneficial for you? And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 77. Psalm 77, and this is the word of the Lord. Verse 1, the psalmist says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands. I would not be comforted. I remember you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the Most High stretched out his, the years, sorry, when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works. I will meditate on all of your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. 
Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I had heard of virtually in January of 2020. And now it's common in most conversations. Many of us have experienced pain and loss through COVID. Transitions. Some of them are simple. They're simple pain and loss, things that we are missing. I grew up in the country. When you look in my parents' backyard, all you can see are consoles. So on the Friday night, we'd sit in the stands, we'd have dinner together, and we'd watch the demolition derby. My brother has been in the demolition derby. We'd cheer him on. And this year, there's no fall fair. There's no gathering. And so what do you do with that? What, what do you do when there's loss of life? On my way up here today, my cousin called me. Her mother passed away a couple of years ago. I took her mother's funeral, not a believer. Shared the gospel at the funeral. And then my dad, with his older cousin, uh, who is 10 years older than my dad, his, his widower, uh, his widow, began to share the gospel with him. And he passed away through COVID, in the very, very beginning of COVID, where there could be no funeral. And today she was just mourning, grieving, that there's been no celebration of life for her dad like there was for her mom. My family owns a business. My wife and I own a business. My wife repurposes furniture. We have a storefront. Employees got shut down during COVID. I mean, you may not know this, but you may have experienced it. The job loss through COVID, more small businesses have closed. 88,000 in April was the stat that came out in, in, in August. 88,000 small businesses closed in April. That's more than double ever in April in Canada's history, ever. They're expecting by the end of COVID that another 180,000 small businesses across Canada will close. It will cripple the entire economy. They're believing that people will make it through Christmas and then after Christmas, they'll plunge if the economy does not pick up. And so we laid off employees. We've never done that before. The last two years when the business was slow, my wife and I did not take a paycheck from the business so that we could make sure our employees were paid. And what do we do now? What do you do when you can't pay your employees? What do you do when they don't have enough work? What do you do when they're trying to feed your families? You're coming to Heritage. Everything looks different. Nothing looks like what you expected it. And you gather and you ask yourself, how do I handle this? So whether it's job loss, whether it's inadequate supports, whether it's missing something like the fall fairs and something that your family does, what happens to most of our culture is we complain. We come to the point in place where we just complain. We just complain about things we don't like. Complain about our parents. None of you do that. Complain about our friends. Complain about our roommates. Complain about a professor. Complain about a class. We just complain. Don't complain about anything. So what do we do when life hits us hard? What do we do when things are actually a struggle? What do we do when things don't seem fair? God has granted us an incredible gift in Scripture. An incredible discipline. It's known as lament. Lament. Where we can actually come before God with cries of pain and anguish and let Him know how we feel. And whether it's something as simple as a fall fair and say, God, I miss being with my family. God, this was tradition for us. My entire life, my entire 48 years, I have been to a fall fair until this year. God, I miss that. My kids have gone every year of their lives, all four of them. Whether it's today grieving with my cousin as I'm driving up saying, 
Oh, how do we mourn and celebrate your dad like we did your mom? God's granted us something very different than non-believers. We have the gift of lament. Mark Grogop writes this. I have a few quotes today. You'll have to listen to them because I don't have a screen. Listen to this. In his book on dark, uh, dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, he says this. You might think that lament is the opposite of praise. It isn't. Instead, lament is a path to praise that we are led through our brokenness and disappointment. It is the space between brokenness and God's mercy where this song is sung. Think of a lament as the transition between pain and promise. That's a beautiful line. Lament is the transition between pain and promise. And I know even in your young lives, you have experienced pain in COVID. Things have changed. They've altered. And if not through COVID, you've experienced pain in your life. Parents that have divorced. Family situation gone awry. A relationship that's soured. And there's this pain that just aches in your soul. And you don't know what to do about it. And God's granted you this incredible gift of lament. It's one of the most misunderstood and underused, maybe neglected, if you will, gifts that God has granted us, where we can cry out in pain, ah, in anguish, God! But different than the world, when they cry out, they have no hope. We cry out with our hope anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his imminent return, because he's conquered sin and Satan and death. No one taught me more about lament than my friend Julia Bear. When she was 26 years old, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Married, wonderful, wonderful young woman, teacher, loved the Lord deeply, and uh, her husband Andy. And she passed away when she was 28. She was in three of the small groups that my wife and I hosted at our house, her and her husband. And at one point, she felt that God's call on her life was to be more evangelistic, but she didn't know how to do it. And while she was dying with cancer, she wrote a blog called Anchor of My Soul. It's still worth looking up. Where she was very real. When she was first diagnosed, how she was sad that she would never have children. Sad that her and her husband would, she could live. She was athletic, an anchor of my soul. Aside from my body adjusting to the loss of so many items of my abdomen, of, of the loss of so many items in my abdomen, more than I can recite, my left leg has significant nerve damage. I cannot feel my leg from my hip down. My physiotherapist believes that eventually my nerves will regenerate after three or four months of using a walker. This has been incredibly hard and deliberating. The, the progress is slow each day. These past two weeks have been the most difficult in my life. The patient and affliction portion of my Romans 12, 12 verse has become all the more real and cha challenging. My personality is to set goals, achieve them quickly, and then set new goals. I'm not patient, but boy, has this recovery demanded patience when I make tiny progress one day and then experience new setbacks the next. There were moments in the hospital after moving into my parents' house last week that I felt so discouraged by the whole situation. It is in that place of discouragement and uncertainty that I've reminded, been reminding myself of Hebrews 12, 12. Fix my eyes on Jesus. Why would this be helpful amid suffering? How would looking to Jesus make the reality of these challenges any easier? The answer is this. He knows suffering. I'm struck by God's relentless love for mere humans. 
In love, he experienced the mockery, betrayal, shame, and physical pain of dying on the cross. He is no stranger to suffering, pain, and discouragement. It is because of his suffering that we can have faith in life. It is because of his suffering that I cannot grow weary and lose heart. It is because of his suffering I can persevere the long road ahead. So the psalmist, this psalmist is Ashaph. He's a prominent Levite. He's a singer and seer. He's mentioned a number of times in First and Second Chronicles. And look at the verses, one and two to start. He says, I cried to God for help. I cried for God to hear me. I was in distress. I sought the Lord. I stretched out my untiring hands. I would not be comforted. He said, I came to you, God. I cried out to you for help. But here's the dilemma. He wanted God on his terms. I believe that's the first part of the song. He somehow wanted God on his terms. He's saying, I'm coming to you, God, but where were you? I'm coming to you. I was in distress. I sought you. My untiring hands kept stretching out, but I would not be comforted. He's saying, I would not be comforted by food. I would not be comforted by entertainment. I would not be comforted by pleasure. I would not be comforted. I wanted this wound to be open. He wouldn't even be comforted by God. I know some Christians, when they go through suffering, they blame God. He's the sovereign almighty one, so it's his fault. It's his problem. God has caused this, and they blame him or angry with him. But giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. You see, we can't have God on our terms. We get God on his. Note this, his deep pain, verse 3. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. It's like when you get an email from someone that you'd rather not hear from again, a text from someone you thought you blocked. Somebody messaged you on Instagram and you thought you'd gotten rid of them and you see them and go, ah, like it's a groan. That's what's happening here. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. Ah, oh, it's God again. I meditated. My spirit grew faint. Meditation is supposed to be refreshing. Meditation is what's supposed to bring in renewal. And he said, instead, I grew faint. I, you kept my eyes from closing. I was true trouble to speak. I was exhausted, God. Exhausted. And it was you. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. He was thinking about his former days, the glory days. You haven't been out of high school long enough to do this for the most part, but if I am sitting with my high school friends, they talk about high school as if they were the glory days of life. When I was in high school, the last two years of my high school, our football team became the Ontario champions for those two years. And when I sit with the football guys, you would think that that was the pinnacle of life. I, I, I went to Bible college. I have a four-year undergrad degree and, and uh, a master's degree. And I had a great time my undergrad. I was a student leader. I was an RA. I, I, I loved serving in those capacities. And when I get together with my Bible college friends at reunions, we'll talk about what happened then. My wife didn't go to Bible college with me. So she's like, what in the world are you guys talking about? Why is that so funny? But we think it's quite funny, and we really enjoy it. But we'll talk about the glory days. That's what he's doing. He's talking about, I thought about my former days. I, I, I thought about the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. He, he was a well-written artist. He'd written a number of songs. So he's thinking about his greatest hits. And he said, my heart meditated and my spirit asked, I want you to note this, the words here, I, 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 me, I, I, me, I. So self-centered, so self-absorbed, so narcissistic. 
He went to God, but he went to God wanting God to do what he wanted. He went to God and he, and, and when he was reflecting on it, it was all about him. It was all about the psalmist. It wasn't about the Lord. When we come to God and complain, it's all about us. It's not about him. When we come to God and we just kind of go, ugh, we complain about life the way we do, about our jobs, about our lives, about our relationship. You know, every time you're complaining, you're telling God you don't like him. Telling God you don't like your life. And you're letting every non-believer who hears you complain know that your God can't do a thing. Why would they ever want to follow him? Eugene Peterson says this about this passage. I love this quote. He talks about the comparison between pity and self-pity. Pity, he said, is one of the noblest emotions capable to human beings or available to human beings. Self-pity is possibly the most ignoble. Pity is the capacity to enter into the pain of another in order to do something about it. Self-pity is an incapacity, a crippling emotional disease that severely distorts our perception of reality. Pity discovers the need in others for love, for healing, and then fashion, speech, and action, and brings strength. Self-pity reduces the universe to a personal wound. It's displayed as proof of significance. Pity is adrenaline for acts of mercy. Self-pity is a narcotic that leaves its addicts wasted and derelict. And I know lots of Christians who think they got the raw end of the deal. Why didn't I get asked to do that heritage? That prof seems to treat her better than me. Why did I get this grade and not that grade? And we wallow in self-pity and complaint. And then the psalmist asks some real questions. Verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Are you rejecting God? Will he never show his favor again? Are you a disinterested God? Has his unfailing love banished forever? Are you a stingy God? Has his promise failed for all time? Are you an impotent God, unable to do anything? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Are you a forgetful God? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Are you an irritated God? You ever felt that way? As if God has rejected you? Maybe it's because of your sin. Maybe last night you were looking at pornography and today you're here in school and in chapel. You know you shouldn't have been looking at that pornography. And now you just feel dirty. You don't know how to be clean in God's sight again. Maybe you cheated on a paper. Maybe not yet. You haven't been in school long enough. Maybe you lied to someone about something. About something you did at church. About something you did wherever. Ministry people do this all the time. They shouldn't. They lie about where they speak. What they do. How they do it. How many people were there. Credentialing. Just try to look better themselves. And then they feel this distance in their relationship with God. Because instead of repenting, instead of longing for restoration of that relationship, they just push God aside. And they feel rejected. They feel as God is God. Why? Why them and not I? Can I tell you this? The psalmist was able to come to God with all of this pain. Be truthful about the fact that he was really self-absorbed. 
and God hears it all. And then verse 10, because he has a determined trust. Then I thought, and to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider your works. I will meditate on all of your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, they're holy. What God is as great as our God? Verse 14, you are God. You perform miracles. You display your power among the people. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. There's a contrast here. The eyes previously were all about him, about his glory days, about his songs, about what he had accomplished, about who he was. And God, don't you remember me? And now there's a contrast and the eyes are taking him to the Lord. I will remember who he is. I will remember what he has done. And then it talks about your deeds, your miracles, your works, your mighty works. You are great. You perform miracle, your power, your redemption. He lifts his eyes from all of his complaint to the sight of who God is. And in that moment, he remembers that he is a servant and child of the Most High. The term Most High is the term for God's sovereign majesty, his preeminence. All of a sudden, he remembers, oh, yeah, I'm a child of God. And he stretched out his right hand. His right hand is his hand of strength, of capableness, of his unstoppability. God is unstoppable. Is that not good news? He is the Most High. He is the Lord. And here the psalmist says, I've remembered your deeds. I've remembered your miracles. I've remembered your works. I've remembered your mighty deeds. This past year, we've had a few young people come to faith in Christ. One young man is Rick, 17 years of age. I'd like him to come here next year. Got a 98 average in high school from a Buddhist home. When he was six years old, his dad won $400,000 and became a drug cartel with it. Was incarcerated for a decade. And God began to work in Rick's life through the ministry of our church and our youth ministry. This past December, Rick was baptized. The night before his baptism, his mom sat at his bedside and said, Rick, we are Buddhist, not Christian. I'm not going to stop you from being baptized tomorrow, but I'm not going to go. And he came to his baptism alone. Alone. No family member joined him. That might sound unusual to you. I was raised in a Christian home. My whole family celebrated when I was baptized. Well, he invited some friends. Though none of his family came, he invited some Buddhists, some Muslim, and some Hindu friends. I'm not exaggerating. It was a great day. They didn't, he didn't know he shouldn't be inviting them to church. They all came. So there's 30 of them sitting there, Buddhists, Muslim, and Hindus in our church that day. He's got a 98 average. He was the athlete of the year for his school, and he thinks he's really good looking. Emphasis on he thinks. And so he stood in front of everyone that day in the baptismal tank when our youth pastor Derek was going to baptize him. And I was standing there, and he said this. He said, I thought my academics would fulfill me and satisfy me, but they didn't. He said, I do well academically, but they weren't fulfilling. I thought my athleticism would fulfill me, but I broke my arm and realized that it was empty. He said, I thought that the girls all liking me would fulfill me, and I questioned whether that was true or not, but he said it was. But he said, and I realized even that was empty. He looked at all of his friends, and this is what he said. I have found in Jesus Christ the all-fulfilling one. 
I find the only one that satisfies is him. He said, I implore you, I encourage you, I challenge you to believe on him, to believe in Jesus. He longs to save you. That's what he said to his friends that day. He went on for several minutes. And then Amy and I, my wife and I, because there should be some baptismal party, right, with our youth pastor Derek and his wife and others from our church, we hosted a big barbecue back at our house in December for his baptism and talked with Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists who were there with him at his baptism. Shortly after that week, Rick and I were talking, and as we were talking, he was saying to me, if you could give advice to a young Christian man, what would it be? I said, well, Rick, it's simple. Remember the works of your God. He said, what? I said, remember the works of your God. That's what the psalmist says here, isn't it? He says, I remember your deeds. I remember your miracles. I remember your works. I remember your power. I remember your redemption. One of the most important things you can do in your youth is remember the great and mighty works of God in your life and recount them. The way he allowed heritage to stay open through COVID, is that not great news? The way he provided for you to be in school, the way he guided you, the way he redeemed your life, whether you're like me and God grabbed a hold of your life in a Christian home when you were four years old, or you were like Rick and you were raised in a non-Christian home. You thank the Lord for his work in your life, and you recount the mighty ways you've seen him work. The way he's provided, the way he's guided, the way he's led, the way his mighty right hand has stretched itself out and shown you that he is indeed the Almighty One. Because lament as we come before God and say, God, it hurts. God, it's hard. God, this is difficult. God, my dad is dying with cancer. God, this girl just dumped me. God, my grades are plummeting. Whatever it is, lament is this cry of anguish that comes before the Lord that takes us from pain to promise because we are anchored in the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Do you know, I did, I did studies on complaint this year. And if you read medical journals out of whether they're out of, out of Canada, out of America, out of, out of, um, the British world, you will find that those who complain with no hope have increased anxiety and stress multifold. Depending on the study it would depend on how much more it was. But as our world just complains, as our world just agonizes, and they have no hope, they see no end insight to their complaint. It increases their stress and anxiety multifold, and the mental health that goes along with it. That's why we're not called to complain. That's why God has given us this gift of lament. His ways are set apart. They're holy. Verse, verse 13. He is power. Redemption. Jesus lamented. He's coming to raise his friend Lazarus to life again. He knows he's going to do it. He's already said he's going to do it. And when he gets to where Lazarus is and he pauses and the Jewish mourners would have still been there in his humanity, perfect humanity, he's overcome with emotion. The Bible says he weeps. I don't know why he weeps, but I'll give a couple of examples or a couple of reasons as the possibility. I believe the one is just he weeps because there's just this emotion and his friends are all weeping and he joins in the grief. And Jewish wailers were loud. It was anguish. 
And I believe he weeps because in that moment, as he sees death of a friend firsthand, he knows that the created order that he had intended had been ruptured by sin so that we would experience death. And he hated death. He'd come to, un- to die so he could undo death. And in that moment, he just weeps. He just loudly cries at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Because ah! he knows this isn't what he intended. He knows this isn't what was supposed to happen. He knows that he's come to undo death. And that's why we have to have the proper perspective on things. One of the writings I so appreciate is Nicholas Wolsteroff. Years ago, in his little book, Lament for a Son, he wrote, his diary was chronicled and then journaled and then published as he talked about his son, Eric, who was 25, who died in a tragic mountain climbing accident. His son, Eric, knew and loved the Lord. But this is what he writes at one point. This is a great quote. It's long. Listen. Someone said to Claire, his wife, I hope you're learning to live at peace with Eric's death. Peace, he says. Shalom. Shalom is the fullness of life in all dimensions. Shalom is dwelling in justice and delight with God, with the neighbor, with oneself in nature. Death is Shalom's mortal enemy. Death is demonic. We cannot live at peace with death. When the writer of Revelation spoke of the day coming, of the day of Shalom, he did not say that on that day we would live with death. He said that on that day there would be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I shall try to keep this wound from healing and recognition of our living still in the old order of things. I shall try to keep it from healing in solidarity with those who sit beside me on humanity's morning bench. You see, when people say you need to be at peace with death, that is not true. You need to be at peace with God about someone's death, but you never need to be at peace with death. Death is the enemy that God will one day vanquish. And so we can come to a funeral and be like, God, this hurts. God, this isn't what, what, what I ever thought would happen. My, my wife grew up in the abusive home of an alcoholic who abused her over and over and over again, physically and sexually. She grew up in a horror home. And God saved her when she was 17 years old. And her dad died seven years ago now in his alcoholism, in that mess. And I had to take the funeral. And I remember when I was coming up to that funeral, and I remember going to that funeral home, and she'd gone on with her sister and the kids, and I was there by myself, and I was walking outside of the funeral home, and I was just like, ah! I wanted him to be saved. And to the very end, he cursed God and died. It's okay to be angry with death. You need to be at peace with God. And lament allows you to cry out with the things that have anguished to the core of your soul to God and have him hear them and understand and comfort you and reach you at your very point of need. It's in the times when you feel like he's silence that you write out the things that he's done so you remember who he is. Verse 16, the water saw you, God. The water saw, saw you. The dare, very deeps, they convulsed. The dark clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded, lightning and thunder. 
the path led to the sea. Whenever you see this imagery in, in scripture, at first with the water imagery, it's often of the chaos. You see that in Genesis, right? Where the spirit of God hovered over the deep and then God brought order to what was chaotic. Jesus is on the boat. He's below. The disciples are there. A, a large storm breaks out. The disciples who are trained fishermen and would have known storms on that sea were terrified so much so that they woke up Jesus afraid they were going to die. Jesus simply says, be, stop, be quiet, be still, and the, the wind and the waves stop. The wind and the waves just stop. Because creation's creator is also creation's Lord. Why did the wind and the waves stop? Was it because of Jesus' power? Yes, but it was more than that. They recognized his voice. Because he is God come down. He then, in verse 19, led through the sea. There's obviously here images of the exodus and the Egyptian tyranny and the plagues that ensued. And then finally, the death of the firstborn and the meeting out or leading out toward the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea and God parting that Red Sea for them and them crossing on dry land. And the psalmist here is reminded of God's great deliverance for his people. We sit on the other side where we know that our great deliverance is the cross. Our great deliverance is Jesus entering into time and space, him showing up, him living a perfect life, him never having sinned. And at the end of his life, him going to the horror of the cross, but not just the horror of the cross. The wrath of the Father is poured out on him, and he went through hell on the cross. When people say, I'm going through hell, no one has gone through hell but Jesus himself. I'm not saying they don't have a difficult situation. No one has gone through hell but Jesus himself. And Jesus went through hell on the cross as the Father's wrath is poured out on him so that he could reunite us with himself. It's great news. He takes our place. He becomes our sin. We get to be his righteousness. He defeats sin. He defeats Satan. He defeats death. Three days later, he's raised to life again. And I tell you this, any God who would come down while you were his enemy, any God who would come down while I was his enemy and would live among us and die for us and be raised to life again, any God who would cling to that cross while the wrath of his father was being poured out on him, who would be forsaken so that you could be welcomed in, who would be abandoned so that you could be adopted, any God who would do that is never, ever, 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 ever out to ruin your life. He's only out to grant you life in abundance. You can trust him. Always trust him. Because he would not have gone through that for you. And then not be someone you could trust. You can trust God with everything in the last verse. So you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He granted the people a prophet and a priest. God provided what they needed. A prophet and a priest. Maybe right now you need a prophet and a priest in your life. God, would you provide those? Maybe right now you can be a prophet or a priest for someone else. Some of you are here studying so that one day you can be a godly Sunday school teacher or elder in your church. And some of you are here studying one day so that you can be a pastor or a missionary, youth pastor, worship ministry director. And as you study, one day God will allow you to be the prophet and priest in others' lives, even here at Heritage, to be his hands and feet.
And so we need to move from complaint to lament. Is that not a great gift God gives us? To be able to cry out to him in anguish. And you should do that even today. Maybe there's something that you're truly grieving through COVID. Maybe you lost loved ones and you couldn't bury them. You couldn't grieve the way you would. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe you suffered. Maybe the loneliness. I was with someone for lunch on Sunday who struggles with all kinds of mental health issues as part of our, of our, of our, of our church and has been to Bible college. Guy that I just, I just so appreciate. And COVID has wreaked havoc on his mental health. It's been so hard. Maybe you found that. And today as you walk from this gym, you should say, God, it hurts. God, it's hard. But you don't stay there. You recount his power, his miracles, his deeds, the way that he's worked in your life. And you remember that this God has not let you go. But you stop complaining so that you can lament. I saw Julia Bear, that woman with cancer, just a couple of days before she died. Her body was all twisted and deformed. She was racked with pain. Sat in her living room. Her husband took her and repositioned her so that she could be comfortable. And I said to her, Julia, how are you? And she looked at me and she smiled. My wife Amy was sitting beside me and Amy was just weeping. The first words out of her mouth were this, Dwayne. God is so good. She recounted ways she had seen the goodness of God. And then she looked at me and she said, when you take my funeral, let everyone know that God has been faithful and good and good. Because he welcomes us in. He grants us favor. He lavishes us with love. He fulfills his promises. He's full of mercy and compassion. And we can bring him all of our pain because we can trust him. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, we are so thankful that you are a God who can take all of our pain and hear it because you went through a pain greater than we will ever experience. God, today, some of us through COVID have experienced such anguish and difficulty and challenge. And we've complained, but we haven't lamented. Today, God, would you teach us to lament, to come before you and just cry out with the agonizing heartbreak of our soul and say, God, it hurts. Would we not forget your deeds, your love, your compassion, your grace? Would we not forget your power and your miracles? And God, would we recount your redemption and the ways that you've been at work? knowing that in this pain there is promise because you are our God and you offer us hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brother Dwayne, for uh, ministering deeply to our hearts. Uh, before you go, I, as uh, Dwayne was preaching, I was reminded that we have several in our community, on our staff and faculty, and I'm sure on our student body, who have laments that we are bringing to the Lord. And I just wanted to highlight two so you could be uh, praying with us on that. Uh, Mr. Schoenmaker's father-in-law, Josiah's grandpa, uh, is in the hospital. Josiah, is he still in the, in the hospital today or is he? So uh, he's quite ill. And uh, the Ross family, uh, Mr. Ross is the man's name. They've just been friends of the school for so many years. So we want to remember Jim Ross 
and the Schoenmaker family. And then Dr. Barker, uh, Dave Barker's father, is probably going to pass from earth to heaven uh, in the next few hours. And that's Dr. Joel Barker's grandpa. So uh, some of you have both those uh, men as profs. So uh, Chuck Schoenmaker and then the Barker's family. I'm sure there are others. Uh, these are just two that just uh, I heard about real recently. So I would like to just pray for them specifically, and I'll include others that I don't know by name, but God does. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good word that we can move our pain towards promise through lament. And we do, um, we do stand on scripture, and we grieve that death is a part of our reality, knowing that you never intended us to die, you made us to live, and knowing that one day you will destroy death. But Lord, like Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, we stand and we grieve, we weep. And today we would pray for our uh, brothers, uh, Jim Ross, the Schoenmaker, his father and grandpa. I pray for Jim. Lord, you know he can't be with his family right now, and He's uh, sedated, confused, and sick. And we just ask that your mercy would be upon him and their whole family. And then for uh, Keith Barker, Lord, this dear man who's in his 90s, who's loved you for so many years, I pray for Dr. David Barker and Dr. Joel Barker as the, and their families as they grieve this. And also hang on to the hope that both these men, Mr. Ross and Mr. Barker, know you well. Lord, there are many others, even in our circle, that I'm not naming, but you know their names, you know their needs. We bring all of this to you, remembering what you've done in the past and trusting you for what you'll do in the future. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being here, and God bless you as you move out the rest of your day here at Heritage.